Well, good evening, everyone, and, and uh, thank you very much. I'd like to add my appreciation for the invite here on such uh, an important topic as this. Uh, I can hardly think of a more significant uh, topic in our day than the education of children, having uh, two myself, being a lifetime uh, educator, uh, a parent, the uh, chair of a school board that's just opened, uh, not a school board, but a board for a school in Toronto uh, with uh, a clear mandate and understanding what, what education ought to be in an attempt to bring that to the city of Toronto. I will add that the TDSB's curriculum, which is going to be pushed through, or the Ontario curriculum, which we're discussing this evening, already exists in Toronto. And it's already being practiced in Toronto. And I'm going to show you some slides from the posters of the curriculum in Toronto to speak to uh, some of the stuff I've been reading in papers, which is that there's very little about this in the curriculum. It's very marginal, and it's not really a big deal. But when you can see not just the, the, the seeds in the curriculum, but how they get uh, reinforced through posters and campaigns and equity officers and so forth, then you'll have a sense of what we're talking about here. <clears throat> so thanks for that as well, Jack. I found that very helpful and informative. Um, I want to talk, I knew that Jack was going to talk about the specifics of the curriculum, so I'm not going to talk about that per se. I did know that we were also going to hand out the Campaign Life's uh, 12, I think, steps for fighting against that. I'm going to go through those a little bit because I actually think they're quite good. I'll add a little bit to that myself, but I will speak to that. But I want to step back a little bit and talk about uh, public education in Canada in general. Uh, because the institutional separation of Canada's public education, whether uh, it is the Protestant, which is the public education in general, or the Catholic system, that separation began a long time ago. Uh, Jack is right about that. The observation that was made here by this gentleman is absolutely correct. That process has been an ongoing one. It's been going on uh, for generations we all would have been affected by that, more or less. And it, it, but it's a progressive one. It's been a slow one. I'll talk about the dynamic of that in a few minutes as well. Uh, and it seems to me, though, what we are seeing here in our day is much like the parable of the prodigal son. You all know the parable of the prodigal son. He asks his father for his inheritance uh, early on in his, uh, uh, before his father's even dead. He says, give me my inheritance. Uh, his father gives him his inheritance, which is one-third of his life. He takes the, takes the money and he goes and squanders it on dissolute living. And then he comes back to his father when he's been left eating the food of pigs, uh, begging his father for forgiveness and just wanting to be one of his hired hands. It's better than eating pig swell. Now, what the parable lacks, because it's a parable and stories don't have that sense, it lacks any sense of time scale. And I would submit to you that really what we're talking about here is the parable of the prodigal son in terms of the public education system. The public education system in Canada was started up by Egerton Ryerson. Many of us will know him, a Methodist minister. And other Christian denominations, Protestant ones, the Catholic system has always been there. It's been there from the Quebec Act onwards, guaranteed in the Constitution and so forth. There have always been two systems, but the, but the Protestant system, started by Ryerson and others, uh, was there to ensure that the tenets of the Christian faith were taught. 
in a way that would uh, promote the truth about Jesus Christ to all people. It was a part of the whole curriculum, all shot throughout it. Uh, as the 20th century progressed, that became less and less the case. When I went to school in the 70s, uh, it was still in the school system. We were, uh, there was a Bible reading over the PA. Uh, there was a, the Lord's Prayer was said. Uh, I, I think I even have some memory of a little sermonette by the principal, but I know that that varied from school to school. But it was there, as was God Save the Queen in Old Canada, every day. Uh, by the time we got to uh, the 1990, all overt forms of religiosity, prayer, Bible reading, were removed from the Ontario uh, public school system. Now that is, well, you count, you do the math. I'm a, an English professor. 25 years ago, uh, I was just graduating from university at that time. Now, what we saw there in the public school system had begun far earlier in the universities. The universities in Canada were uh, Christian in their foundations, uh, from various denominations. U of T was Anglican, Western was Anglican, McMaster was Baptist. Uh, McGill and Queens were Presbyterian, Waterloo, uh, Waterloo was Lutheran, and, and so on and so on. And, and Catholic institutions as well, not quite as uh, common in, in Ontario. But still, they were all there and they all had Christian roots. So the Christian mandate to educate has always been there. It's been there throughout the history of um, since Christ. In fact, the earliest, uh, uh, the best success of the early church in conversions was with the very young. So there's always been a Christian mandate to educate. I'm going to speak more about that in a minute. But come 1990, with the uh, abolition, I'll say, of of overt uh, forms of religious affiliation in the public system, that wasn't the end of the dying of the light. It hadn't yet reached its bottom. I think most of us, uh, rather naively, probably thought that it was. There is already irony in the fact that in the name of tolerance, we can't tolerate uh, expressions of the Christian faith uh, in the public system. In the name of the separation of church and state, there can be no more church. Because that, that's what it means. It doesn't mean just simply separating the two as, a, as having different jurisdictions. It means there can be no expression uh, publicly accepted of the Christian faith in Ontario. We're seeing that more and more now. Now, uh, uh, Father Newhouse wrote, uh, brought this magazine first things up to speak against that precise thing. So the naked public square, naked of all vestiges of the Christian faith. That's happened in your lifetime. I look out and we're, we're all older here, more or less. Not as old as me, some older. I'm thankful for that, increasingly. Uh, but we all recognize that. It's a very different time now than it used to be. And uh, back in 1990... Uh, I think that there were objections to the separation, the the banishment of the Lord's Prayer, Bible readings from the public school system, but they weren't very loud. I I don't even remember them at the time. I wasn't a Christian at the time, having said that, so maybe it didn't register. And they weren't very widespread. In in general, I think Ontarians quietly assented to the change. Life went on. what was being thought at that time, I, I simply don't know. Uh, some of you might be able to enlighten me what you were thinking at the time. Maybe you did fight against it. Maybe you were outraged. But I can't recall, as I say, in, in university, and really I was, unlike most undergraduates now, following what was going on in the news. I have little memory of that as a, as a big issue. Uh, maybe it was thought that Christian teaching could be done in a church 
You know, one, the one hour in Sunday school on a Sunday, maybe that would be enough. Uh, maybe people thought that uh, it, was, it was an opportunity for their children to be uh, salt and light in the public system. I've heard parents uh, even now talk about this. Yes, the public education system is bad. And yes, it is also not, it's not just this curriculum, it's the whole thing. As my friend here, uh, uh, our good teacher, cited that the whole curriculum is, is distorted now. But yet my children can still be salt and light in that. Uh, well, as I say, there's a downward spiral and it seems to keep going downward and there doesn't seem to be any bottom. Uh, more recently, these uh, equity and inclusivity policies have followed on the heels of the abolition of Christianity from the public school system. Uh, they've euphemistically called for alternative sexualities. Uh, my area of expertise in English literature, one of them at any rate, is in literary theory, the sex and gender thing that we're talking about. Gender as a concept comes up with Simone de Beauvoir, the second sex. Sex refers to your biological male-female. Gender is the social constructs that are associated with your sex. So we will associate men uh, dress this way, women dress that way. The way they dress is the social construct. That's what she calls gender. Now, gender is something that you personally, individually construct. It's a shift. It's, a, it's actually a seismic shift. Because it's no longer what the society says, is what you decide that is. And now your sexual orientation can trump your biological identity. Now that's not a small shift. It overturns what human nature is itself. Uh, and this is, this is being bought into by the corporate world. Facebook identifies something, I think, like 59 different gender uh, identities. And my question is, why does it say, you know, what's it got against the 60th? That's always my question, or the 61st. There's no end to it, because really, there's nothing that's going to limit. What would they point to? Um, but they have enforced this, quite frankly, idiocy, because it does contradict all, all uh, reasonable uh, discussion. They will threaten opponents with prosecution if they use what they call hate speech, uh, acting on uh, their own phobias and prejudices. Now, this is the shift. When the word homophobia was first used in, in the 60s, it was used to describe a man who feared that he might be considered a homosexual by other men. That's how it was. For, so it was the heterosexual men's fear that other men would think that he was gay. That's how it was originally used. Now it's used to describe anyone who thinks that homosexuality is a sin. So it's been, the word has been turned and twisted and it's been used as a weapon. Let me talk about that for a minute. I talked about it in this extensively, by the way. I've got a few, a few of these. We can uh, distribute them afterwards. Um, but in uh, something called cultural Marxism, which has been with us throughout the 20th century, most of us think, thought Marxism died when the, when the Cold War ended. But not in ed the field of education and not in the field of culture. In those spheres, like in the universities where I earn my crust, uh, they have been operative and they've never given up. And they've always uh, been marching slowly through the institutions. That phrase, the long march, the long slow th march through the institutions, was that of the cultural Marxists. Their terminology, political correctness. Have you heard of political correctness? 
That's cultural Marxism. The explicit aim of the cultural Marxists is to, is to uproot the Christian family from the, the, from the civilization and to explicitly anathematize, that is, make an enemy of the Christian faith. So it's to turn our culture right on top of its head. I'm going to talk about two figures. First one, his name is Theodore Adorno, a German writer. He wrote a uh, work in, what is it, 1950, called The Authoritarian Personality. Uh, Adorno left Germany. When the Nazis came in, he moved to, uh, to the U.S. He was influential there. In The Authoritarian Personality, he created what he called an F scale. Now, the F scale uh, measured degrees of fascism. And the fascism was connected to your affiliation to the family and uh, traditional sexual practices. So the more uh, traditional you were in these areas, the more fascist you were. You can see it, you can read it for yourself if you want. His authoritarian personality. So to this day, to be a, a Christian and to hold Christian views is to be labeled a fascist. You may have wondered how that ever came to be since the fascists were uh, adamantly opposed to the Christians as well as the Jews. But that's where it came from. It's Adorno's identification of that. Now, there's another gentleman that I want to speak to, a little bit more contemporary, one of the uh, uh, products of the sexual revolution. His name was Herbert Marcuse. Anyone heard of Marcuse? A few. Was it from my article? No. Marcuse, in uh, his uh, work, Eros and Civilization, uh, used a hybrid of Marxist and Freudian teaching, and he really reiterated a case that previous Marxists, uh, cultural Marxists, had uh, presented before. So Wilhelm, uh, Wilhelm Reich in The Mass Psychology of Fascism and uh, The uh, Sexual Revolution, 1936, um, stated this, that a new paradise where there was only play and there was no work would be impossible to achieve unless unless something happened first. Society had to be liberated from, and I quote here, non-procreative eros. It had to be liberated from the idea that sex was connected with procreation. Now, how would it do this? Uh, only at that point, but, but only at that point would it be possible to do what Freud described as the infantile stage of pure sexuality, which he described as polymorphous Perversity. I don't know if you remember your Freud from university, the different stages, the oral stage and then the anal stage, those sort of stages. Freud posits very young. They're a sexual being. Kinsey came on the back of Freud in that sense. And uh, Marcuse brought his, the assault on Christendom quite openly, explicitly into the realm of sexual identity. Uh, Marcuse was so influential in 1968 I can see that people weren't with him, uh, that the, the, the sexual revolutionaries had banners that said Marx, Mao, and Marcuse. That's how influential he was. Now, Marcuse, after the sexual revolution, stayed in the universities, and his teaching were, were, teachings were adopted there and remained in the universities. It takes time for the universities that have decoupled from the Christian faith to then get this teaching, and now it filters through very slowly into the textbooks, 
not just in the explicitly sexual ways, but even in the examples that are used. And now the literary theories that surround gender identity, sexual identity, are twisting them and utilizing the material that's already been there. So if this sounds like a conspiracy, can I get you to put the... Uh, yes, that's me, but I don't need me. So is this it? So this is from the TDSB. These are posters that are used in the uh, schools of the TDSB. Now, they used to be on the website. They've been taken down off the website because people like me were pointing people to it, and they were getting a lot of backlash on the air about it. Um, and they took them down. Fortunately, I took uh, photo shots of it, and I've got most of them on my slides now, so most of them at any rate. But they're still, the posters are still in the school. They're just not on the website anymore. Love has no gender note. Note that it doesn't have any number either. You'll see three people there, two men and one woman, and uh, elsewhere up above and then so forth. So love has no gender. Safe and positive spaces, code word for sexual uh, expression without consequences. We're here, we're queer, we're in your school. It's a manifesto. Now these are in the schools that children in primary schools are walking around in. You can see the fish, some swimming this way, some swimming the other way. Multicolored fish, rainbow-colored fish. There are no rules for being a boy or a girl. When we respect each other for who we are, there isn't anything we can't do. Name-calling hurts, shaming hurts, stereotypes hurt. You have a variety. Those are, that's a boy, by the way, with the red wig and the pink boots at the top. Positive spaces. 101. Language hurts. Statements such as, oh, that's so gay, are derogatory. Gender is complex. Masculine and feminine are labels, not definitions. Unwanted touching, sexist jokes, spreading rumors or name-calling are not okay. Be sensitive. Not everyone is straight take action, etc. Question your assumptions. Uh, that's a little too small to read. The term gender shall include actual or perceived sex and shall include a person's gender identity, self-image, appearance, behavior, or expression. Whether or not that gender identity, self-image, appearance, behavior, or expression is different from that traditionally associated with the legal sex assigned to that person, at birth. I could spend the entire lecture with that slide and unpack how many crazy assertions are connected in there because it's just one after the next. What you will see though, however, is that logic has been suspended from the public school system. If you can be both male and female at the same time, then you've just got rid of the law of non-contradiction, in which case logic doesn't hold, in which case uh, we cannot reason through anything, and it's the death of the education system. So we're talking about the sexual perversion, which is, of course, there, but let's deal with the reality that no longer is education the purpose of the public school system. When this is taught, there is no more truth. There is no more logic. No wonder they can't do math. No wonder they can't read. These are uh, uh, texts that are there in the Toronto libraries, but also in the TDSB. So my princess boy... Um, Defying gay gravity, references to bullying and so forth. Is that it? You got a taste of it at any rate. 
Now, I think if I, just having said that, alarm bells should be ringing. I mean, if they're not ringing, then I can't do anything for you, right? Hello, this, this is as bad as it's going to get. No, it's going to get worse because actually pedophilia is in the process of being destigmatized and legitimized as well. And that's because if the uh, normativity of male-female sex in monogamous marriage is no longer the norm, you tell me what the norm is. There is no norm. So how could we stop the endless redefinition of human sexuality? We can't. There's nothing you can point to. If you can't even point to things that you can see, and you have rejected the Bible as an authoritative statement on it, and you've rejected history on this, and you've rejected logic as it, then what are you going to appeal to? There is no stopping it. Except that there is a stop. There is stopping it. That's why we're here this evening. I believe that there is stopping to it. It's not hopeless. But make no mistake, uh, they're queer, they're here, they're in your schools. It's not just the queers. But the, but the twisted minds are instructing your children. There's no doubt about that. Uh, we are seeing the fulfillment of the warning made almost 60 years ago by a woman by the name of Hilda Neatby in a little book called So, it's not a little book, it's called So Little for the Mind. 60 years ago, she was an academic historian. She was a member of the very first Massey Commission. She wrote that in the public system, even, quote, those areas still termed democratic are losing the freedom which gives meaning to democracy because they are losing that sense of direction which gives meaning to freedom. That's her, that's her 60 years ago. Now I'm getting everybody in the room. She's talking about that back then. For Dr. Neatme, as for so many of her generation, this would have meant the necessary, that is what gives meaning to freedom, is the necessary orientation of all true education towards Jesus Christ. That's what it would have meant. In whom alone there is true freedom. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. That was the purpose of education in the public system. It's losing its meaning, it's losing its purpose. Now freedom means license and licentiousness. And that means tyranny. If Dr. Neatby said this, I wonder whether she might end up in front of the Human Rights Commission eventually, as I may be, and so may you, and so may you. That's, uh, that is a We're living in days of tyranny. There's no doubt about that. Uh, I'm hoping that many people, and from what I'm seeing in the fact that it's still in the media, and in the, particularly in the social media, many people are now openly beginning to question what has come to pass in what seems like, how did this happen so suddenly? Like, it just seems like it was overnight. I was in school 20 years ago. It wasn't that bad. That's true. It, it wasn't that bad, although it was bad back then. And the st statistics bear me out on this. Let me cite a study to you. Uh, in a study called enti uh, entitled Hemorrhaging Faith, came out in 2011, According to its report, only one in ten young adults in both the Roman Catholic and the mainline Protestant churches who attended church at least weekly as a child still do to today. One in ten. What a rate of attrition. If we could get one in ten adults into our churches in terms of evangelism, we would be thrilled. But to lose nine in ten, look at your church I'm talking now about the Catholic and the mainline Protestant churches. Look at your church. Nine out of every little children in your church is going to be gone and will have nothing to do with the Christian faith, will be hostile towards it, in fact, because they will think that the Christian faith has nothing to do with the way the world really is. Why is that? 
because they're publicly educated. That's why. And their parents have sent them to the public education system. And their parents have thus effectively said that education is for the experts. And they know best. And it can't be that bad. And surely this isn't happening. Uh, Amongst evangelicals, four of every ten who attended church at least weekly as a child still do today. So six in ten who are in your pews are no longer going to be there by the time they're age 23. All in all, about 70% of young adults are leaving the church. I'm going to talk about this at the end. You know, what should parents, what should pastors, what should bishops, what should priests do in light of the clear and irrefutable statistics and the evidence, not just of the curriculum, but of the departures from the Christian faith, what is to be done? Many parents still say, it wasn't that bad, I went through, I'm okay. They still say that to me. I'm just shocked and appalled, but I, I recognize that they're just, they're ignorant of what's going on, they just don't know, and they don't want to believe it. A little diversion here for a second. One of my favorite movies, so I think it was made in 1967, was an adaptation of a play by Robert Bolt. It's called A Man for All Seasons. Made in 1967. Uh, great actors. Great script. Uh, it, uh, I encountered it in grade 13 when I was in uh, high school. We read it as a play. We also watched it. It had a huge impact on me. Uh, it's about Thomas More the Catholic saint, uh, centers around his refusal to violate his conscience by agreeing to the dissolution of Henry VIII's marriage. He won't do it, he won't agree to it, but he stays silent about it. And he is convinced that if he says nothing, they'll leave him alone, and because he's a very clever lawyer and they're not going to get him. Uh, And the reason that he doesn't want to say anything is because he lived in the day of a monarch, a monarchy, who was also the head of the church, and to uh, speak against him uh, ran the risk of treason. And treason is a capital offense. He could lose his head. So he said nothing, not even to his wife, because she could, they could put you before the stand on oath and ask you, did you ever hear me say anything? And you'd have to tell them, because before God, you're going to have to declare. So he says nothing. He, ne- he said nothing to anyone. And the famous trial scene has him being interrogated by a prosecutor, claiming that that although he, Thomas More, had never said anything, that's true, everyone in England knew what he thought. That's what the prosecutor said. He was right. Everyone in England did know what he thought. And the the lawyer said, "Um, your silence speaks very loudly, Mr. More. More, who was the lawyer, said, not so, because the maxim of the law is qui uh, tacit consentit. Silence gives consent. So if you are going to construe anything by my silence, it's that I must have consented to what was being said. The maxim of the law is silence gives consent. Bear that in mind for a minute. We live in a very different cultural and social situation. We don't live in a a monarchy. We don't live in a time where the head of state is the head of the national church. We don't live uh, in a time where to be against the state is to be accused of treason. You might get booted out of the Liberal Party, but you're not gonna, your head's not going to be on the block. We still live in a democracy. This democracy is the heritage that the prodigal son has squandered. But we still live with freedom. We have votes in this country. 
We can vote for candidates. We can express our opposition to things that are against our conscience. Um, There's a defined role for the state. There's a defined role uh, for the church. There's an area of sovereignty for the family. Let me read a few passages from Scripture on that just to acquaint you with that in case we haven't heard this preached from the pulpit, which we may well not have been from what we're seeing. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 7. Hear, O Lord, hear, O Israel, rather, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk to them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Uh, That was the so-called Shema given to Israel and, and the synagogue and schooling is therefore essential to Jewish identity. Early Christians picked it up as well, largely because it's picked up in uh, Matthew's gospel in the Great Commission. Hear it for yourselves. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Teaching them, not just baptizing them, but teaching them. It's the teaching mandate of the church. It's repeated also by uh, St. Paul in uh, Ephesians chapter 6, but it's there specifically directed to fathers. Listen, he says to children, obey, uh, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now, those words are connected and spoken specifically to parents. It's the parents' mandate under God over their own children. It's understood. It's clear in Scripture. For 19th century, the church took the mandate seriously. It put their children in church schools. Come the 19th century, the public school system began by Christians. As the days went by, it became and walked away from the Christian faith. Now it's adamantly opposed to the Christian faith in every respect, not just the sexual curriculum. Here we come to the crux of the point. Since the time of uh, Plato, if you've read his Republic, philosophers like he have argued that parents are naturally unfit to educate their children. They're naturally unfit to do so. In an ideal state, which Plato is imagining for himself, the philosopher kings such as he ought to usurp the parent's role. Now, Plato had no children. Surprise, surprise. But the philosopher in the Enlightenment, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, uh, whose ideas ground modern education theory, they truly do, uh, was so enamored with the idea that the state ought to be responsible for bringing about social justice and in absolving himself of parental responsibility, that he took the five children that he conceived out of wedlock and he stuck them in state orphanages. He was, a, he was a real believer. He took his own children and he stuck them in state orphanages. 
1935, there was a BBC radio debate about this very issue. Who ought to be responsible for the education of children? Another uh, representative of the, of the Philosopher's Guild, uh, Bertrand Russell, argued that it ought to be the state. Take it away from families. They are backwards in their thinking. We need a more scientific, progressive system. Um, G.K. Chesterton re responded to him, and he said what every reasonable person recognizes. The immoral example of men like Jean-Jacques Rousseau proves the rule. Parents are by nature best positioned to bring up their children. We can see that uh, Rousseau was an immoral man. We all regard him as this man is a disgrace. That proves the rule. We know that parents ought to do otherwise. And he, above all, he said, children don't raise themselves. Somebody has to do it, and it's not the state, it's the parents who are responsible for it. Now, they can delegate that responsibility, but it remains theirs. It remains theirs. Now, in the intervening period between 1935, um, during the Second World War and the rise of communism, the matter was settled very briefly. How was it settled? The state took control of education, absolutely. Uh, the Hitler Youth in the Communist parties. Uh, both took, in a very totalitarian fashion, absolute control over education, indoctrinating the children. Uh, they were so successful that the UN pushed back. Uh, in uh, uh, Article 26 of the 1948 Declaration of Human Rights, parents were declared to have, quote, a prior right to choose the kind of education that shall be given to their children. Now, that's the UN. This isn't a Christian body. I mean, from its origins, it was, a, it was a humanist, but it understood the atrocity that comes when the state takes absolute control over education. And that declaration was meant to be a hedge of protection against the totalitarian impulse of the philosopher kings. Uh, Chesterton could have added something to his argument here. He could have added the findings of a Cambridge anthropologist. His name was J.D. Unwin. He wrote a work in 1934 called Sex and Culture. It's a very interesting work, not much cited. He cited uh, 80 primitive tribes and six known civilizations over 5,000 years of history. He wasn't a Christian, by the way. Uh, and he strongly correlated the survival of a civilization and its success with the degree of sexual restraint it observed. And I quote, Any human society is free to choose either to display great energy or to enjoy sexual freedom. The evidence is that it cannot do both for more than one generation, end quote. So the life or the death of a civilization, in this case our whole country, is at, which is at stake in the Christian teaching of natural sexual monogamy, which is a moral conviction and a social institution which Unwin observed uh, common to all flourishing cultures. I don't care if they're Christian or not. All flourishing cultures have held to the good of sexual monogamy between one man and one woman. He, that would have been a very powerful argument uh, to, with uh, Bertrand Russell to show that uh, it was not only just for the individual, but also a more just society would result if we hold on to that and the family unit that's at the heart of it. But they never got to that point. Why not? Because they weren't even debating the sexual education of children. It didn't enter their minds. They were still living in a Christian context. To state such things openly on the BBC would have invited 
uh, condemnation. People would have got outraged. <laughs> that age was a, theirs was the age-old question of which adults, which individuals capable of moral responsibility were fit to do the task of creating a just society. Was it parents in the natural family or was it the experts? Was it the philosopher kings? This brings us to the Ontario curriculum and the, and the crux issue here. Whose convictions, the Ontario conviction, curriculum, whose convictions on human sexual health are not liberating but destructive in the name of freedom? They're not liberating. And once again, the debate lies between the parental jurisdiction and the state jurisdiction. Which of them is going to create the just society? But here's the perversity, and it's unprecedented in uh, Western, under Western Christendom. At the heart of the Ontario sex ed curriculum is buried the perverse claim that children raise themselves. Children raise themselves. Now, this is explicit from the very outset of the curriculum. Six years old, which commences with the teaching of consent to a six-year-old. Now, to teach children what consent means, even in the rudimentary terms that Kathleen Wynne has given, when queried about it by the CBC, you know, what is this consent business all about? She said, well, it's about reading facial expressions and emotions. That's what it is. You know, just seeing whether somebody likes it or doesn't like this. But to teach consent is to, to assume that they have the capacity for moral responsibility to exercise it. That's why the legal, the legal age of consent is connected with the age of moral responsibility. You have to be an adult, age of consent. Indeed, if it is going to be a just society, uh, that is the outcome of education, they have to be morally responsible. You can't be, uh, uh, act without moral responsibility. So to teach assent to six-year-olds is to assume they have the moral capacity to exercise it. Friends, by the age of six, the human eye has not even fully developed. The human eye is not fully developed, which, by the way, is why children historically uh, began schooling in their seventh year. They're not ready for schooling. They can't concentrate. They don't need Ritalin. They just have a lot of energy, and they can't focus, literally. They're distracted easily. Kathleen Wynne says teaching consent is about reading facial expressions and emotions. The kid's eye's not fully developed. The intent of the word consent in the, uh, this curriculum is expressive to be understood in the cultural Marxist terms of autonomous sexual freedom and even sexual identity. Now, these are the terms of men from Herbert Marcuse, whom I mentioned, to Michel Foucault, the favorites of the philosopher kings of our day, whose autonomy is declared precisely against the natural family. So if there are critics of the, this curriculum, and I hope everyone in this room, if you weren't one before, you better become one now. Uh, they are right because that it is nothing other than an experiment on children. It is, a, it's a, it is an experiment on children. By the children of the sexual revolution, whose marriages are broken, who are deviants themselves often, but it's an experiment on those ones whom we are sworn to protect. Jesus says, if any one of you causes one of these little ones to sin, 
You know what I'm going, where I'm going with that. Now, that's our responsibility. He's talking about us. Remember, this is to parents. They're the responsible ones. Without, as Jack said, without any consideration for love or marriage, nary a mention of either in this infamous 244-page document, it speaks of sex in consumerist terms, of choice, of sex without moral, without religious, without societal consequences. It's just something to be tried out if you like it. It doesn't even consider the demonstrably bad health consequences for homosexual activity that Jack talked about, which cannot be disputed. It's the teaching not of a just society, but of a perverted individualism that separates children not only from uh, the values of their parents, the parents that, that have borne them, the parents that love them, the parents that nurture them. It separates the two. It teaches them to be rebels. Uh, it also separates them from the idea that one day they will be responsible for children. And that will be the case when this government uh, lies on the ash heap of history. Because it's on the wrong side of history. J.D. Unwin's study has demonstrated that. This curriculum is, puts them on the wrong side of history, to use their terms. It must not be imposed on the only people whose consent is required The only people whose consent is required, that's the people of Ontario. The parents, the grandparents, the people who love their neighbor, even if they're not sending them to the public schools. My question to you is whether your own conscience will permit you to consent to having this curriculum foisted on your children or your grandchildren or your neighbor's children, which you will betoken with your silence, because silence gives consent. How long have I got here? Was that me, or do I have a few more minutes? It's 20, almost 25 past. Five minutes? How can you respond to this, then? Firstly, support your local Christian school. That's what I want. Support your local Christian schools. Christians, in my experience, I teach at Tyndale, it's a Christian university. Um, The attitude of the children in the university, they have a bad attitude about Christian education in general. I find it extraordinary. When I talk to them about it, they said, oh, well, yes, but this is really good. This is Christian education. I say to them, well, but how about what you got in school? And they said, well, it didn't really do anything. And I said, what was the curriculum? They said, oh, well, we did everything that they did in the public school curriculum, but we had prayer and we had a Bible reading, we had mission trips and stuff like that. They used the Ontario public school curriculum, even in the Christian schools. So support your local Christian school, but if you run a local Christian school, don't use this wretched curriculum. It's infiltrated with uh, moral and cultural relativism. It's shot through it. Remember, this happened a long time ago, it's, and it leads children to leave the faith at, at an astonishing rate. Remember, seven out of every 10 children. That's before this infamous curriculum. Um, Send your children to the schools. If you're a a, a pastor, if you're responsible, if you're on a church elders board, uh, consider giving some of that time to support a local Christian school, to make it affordable for others. If you're a parent, you will find a means for this. Uh, We've just started a school. People have struggled for this, to, to make ends meet on it. We found that uh, means came. The Lord supplied the means. It was an exercise of faith. So do consider that, and I think actually that is the ultimate answer here. The public school system needs to be uh, abandoned. 
there needs to be an alternative to it. It needs to be ultimately defunded. It is because my taxes, your taxes, are going for the perversion of children. Now, this is not to attack uh, parents here or educators that are in that system, but it's now my, my money is funding the sexual slavery of children. I can't conscience it. I want it defunded. They should put me on the CBC. I spoke on the Corn Show and CTS and stuff like that. Uh, they've gone under. I need to be on the CBC because then I can bring them down as well. It's a, the kiss of death. You can do other things, though, as well. I, I think that's the primary thing. There are other options. We love our neighbors, so we will fight this. There are, there are petitions out there. Uh, the Campaign Life Coalition has a great one. There are others out there, Parents as First Educators, Charles McVitie's Coalition, those sorts of things. Go to your local church, um, uh, and there are resources available there from these various organizations. Email your local MPP. Let them know that you don't agree with this. You've heard about it, you've looked at it, and this is the consequence of it. It's not their right. They have not been given that authority. That is your authority. They're delegated authorities as well. They're your representatives. Make them know that you next time are not going to vote for them and they will, you will explicitly campaign against them. Request to meet with your MPP with at least one other concerned parent. Don't go on your own. I agree with the advice here. You could be, go to them. Write in the papers. Write in a local paper. That's the one that people get free through the door and they read it. Write a, write a little letter. You're informing people about it. You're letting other people know, oh, it's not okay. There are other people besides me that are unhappy about this. You can go to your local school trustee, exact same thing. And use the media. Show up at rallies. There is a big rally. Here's the one I would recommend that you go to. Uh, I believe it is on April 14th at Queen's Park. I will be there at 10 a.m. Uh, there are already at least 2,500 that are saying they're going to be there. I can see a big, big turnout there. Maybe we can get 10,000. Who knows? Keep it in the media. Keep the pressure up. Um, because people will start to hear about it. People are still asleep at the wheel, quite frankly, on this. Um, but this is not a done deal, despite what was said on this, because these are politicians. And I can tell you, even though it has been pushed through by a majority government, that doesn't mean that the whole Liberal Party supports it. There's no way. Uh, they can, what can happen there, I'm not saying it, it will, but you remember Thatcher got thrown out by her own government. That happens in parliamentary politics. If she's going to push a stance that is going to cost them all in the next election, and you can tell them it's going to be so, they can, there can be a coup. You're out, Miss Wynn. Um, so I would, and, and supporting this father who is fighting it in the, the legal system, I think that is a great thing. Um, let me finish there and let's take some questions. Thank you. Correct me if I'm wrong, at the beginning of this, this speech you talked about Christians being the salt of the earth. Uh, according to the tradition of the church, this, we are the salt of the earth because we preserve the earth, and if the salt has no value or no element, the earth goes bad. Yes. So God uh, allows what's happening. And for me, when I look at the early church fathers and the early saints of the church, uh, there were men and women called to evangelize, like the disciples, and, and 12 men based on their virtue and their faith in Christ, changed the entire world. Twelve men, men with one tunic, no shoes, conquered the entire world. Early Christians who were persecuted, whether in the Eastern or Western Empire, they were silent. 
their lives themselves changed, converted people. Uh, I, they weren't always preaching. They weren't always evangelizing. Yeah. There were certain callings for certain people. And when I look at the situation, you know, well, what, it, what, what does God want from us? Now, I'm not a theologian. I don't see God. I don't know. I try my best as a Christian. Of course. And I have to understand we have to struggle. And a lot of Christians are not struggling. It's this idea that, yeah, let's go to church Sunday. That's it. Okay? It's, it's just good for Sunday. And, well, if we have hockey on Sunday, hockey comes first. We'll go there afterwards. And our daily lives, we're not being the salt of the earth. Right. And this is an amazing opportunity for us because I want to see the good in things to change our lives. Because just by our example alone, if we lead, our lives alone are the gospel. I mean, the gospel is nothing if we don't live it in practice. And I think as Christians, we have to examine this. How are we every single day in, in silence, but in the, the proper Christian uh, stance, how are we living our lives? Does our neighbor see Christ in us? You know, do we say, oh, I, I'm against homosexuals, but at the same time, you know, I allow my daughter and son to date as freely as they want. They go to nightclubs, they smoke, they do all these things. Sure. So how is anyone in their right mind going to say, well, I'm going to believe what these people are saying because they're saying one thing and the example is the other thing. Yeah. So we have to be the barometer. We have to be the salt of the earth because like, if we're not, the world goes bad. And, and, even, and I have to disagree with you about the public education stance because a lot of the great church fathers, St. John Chrysostom, St. Basil the Great, St. Gregory the Theologian, they were part of uh, academia that, yes, uh, um, valued debate and rhetoric, but at the same time, they're polytheistic universities. And, and these three men, amongst many others, are pillars of the church. Okay, well, yeah. let's, can I just answer the question yeah. as it's been posed? First of all, there's a distinction here between children and adults. They were sent out in twos as well, which I think is significant, not just in ones. Uh, they were sent out as a community, in other words. They weren't just sent out as uh, grains of salt, but as bits of salt, and they worked together, and there was uh, a community in that. It's a very different thing for me to operate in a public university. I was entirely publicly educated. I came to faith in the first year of my PhD. That's a different thing, and it may be a different thing for you as a Christian teacher in a, in a hostile public system. You can be salt and light. The, what I've disputed is that children can be salt and light. Jesus never takes the disciples, says, that, you know, these have followed me. He doesn't lay his hand on their head, and he said, now you go out. And the church has never done this. This is sending lambs to the slaughter. Again, think of the consent and the idea of moral awareness. How can they even preach the gospel? You can talk to your friends about Jesus. They don't really have a real consent sense of that. I mean, even in the Orthodox tradition, you'll have a sense of, um, um, so you may be baptized, but then there's a, what do we call that at the age of 12? I've just forgotten. The convocation? You don't have that confirmation? Okay. Okay. So not the age, but there's a confirmation as such that, okay. But that's the point. So it's not tied to the age, it's tied to the moral awareness. At that point, then you are equipped to go out and be the salt and light, I would say. So let's not treat everyone individually exactly the same here and look very carefully what's being stated in Scripture. So you can do that, I can do that. To send kids to do that is abrogating your responsibility as those who are the morally responsible adults. That's what I was speaking to. So not teachers get out of the system, though you may have to do that eventually, as you yourself made uh, us aware, and I think you're correct, but parents get your kids out, because uh, there aren't that many teachers there, actually. 
and those that are there are being muzzled by the curriculum and soon by all this sort of stuff. It's coming. Good. Historically, Christian education was paid out of the tithe, the 10% that was given. That, If you look around the churches around this country that are there from a few generations ago, there'll be the church uh, sanctuary aspect, and then there's a one-room schoolhouse on it. That's because the Christian faith and education go hand in glove. The church historically had uh, uh, responsibility for health, welfare, and education. Those three things. They're clear gospel imperatives. It needs to recover that again. It's not going to start. At this point, it's costly financially. If you don't do it now, while well, there's a little bit of freedom, and do you think it's going to get any easier? People need to speak to their pastors about this and push them on it. Pastors need to be taught about it. This is what the Ezra Institute seeks to do. We're putting a uh, workshop on education on, I think, April 15th. We're going to talk about precisely that. Pastors need to be talking about the significance of Christian education. Uh, Al Mohler, the, the head of the Southern Baptist um, Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, the biggest evangelical seminary in the world, has now said that parents uh, there in the U.S., in the Bible Belt, it's no longer, in his opinion, conscionable to send their children to the public schools. That's in the Bible Belt. What is it like in Toronto? Now, this is a hard push because most churches' budgets are barely meeting their needs. People are not giving because they're so taxed. Well, what are the taxes going for? Health, welfare, education, those things. What are those things doing? They're killing babies. They're not educating. They're bringing in assisted suicide. They're going to muzzle consciences of the healthcare professionals and force them to do it. Do you think it's going to get any better? I say churches really need to have a conversation about this. I would like to have seen, uh, I'm glad to see that there are uh, pastors and priests and religious leaders here. There need to be more. Uh, we need to get, this is so important. There, there is nothing more important than this. You got to start somewhere. But the beauty of education is that in a generation, that's a big shift. And again, remember, Christians are having the kids. So you got you to have the long game in sight. Don't think about the cost now. Think about 
your calling as a parent, you will be accountable one day to God on it. I'm glad to hear that you take it seriously. But that responsibility that you have, maybe you don't have a teaching gift. You can do it cooperatively. There are means of doing it, even if you can't afford it. It is possible. And I don't believe you can't teach at all. Yeah. Yeah. Moral example is the, one of the biggest aspects of teaching. It really is. I don't blame you. It's available online, yeah. But as far as how you can get us to come, invite us. Um, I'm sure Jack and I can be a traveling roadshow or something like that. But um, the Ezra Institute, Joe Boot and I uh, are available to speak. There are other people that are equipped to speak on this issue. Uh, and uh, we're expecting there will be greater um, requests for that. And I will do my best to show up for it. I will, and I'm sure that's the case for Jack as well. This is a really big issue. This is not something that can be left alone. By all means. Uh, no, do. In your time, I just wanted to point out to, to directly answer your question. Um, we found a campaign like coalition that is immensely empowering and awakening to average moms and dads and grandparents who don't, aren't political and don't follow any of this stuff to see what's in the curriculum. So, uh, Pastor Don's wife put out on the table up there a summary of what I went through grade by grade. It's this document called Ontario's Radical Sex Ed Curriculum. Uh, you can take that and share that. It's available on our website, downloadable as well, campaignlifecoalition.com forward slash sex ed. So we have it available there in, uh, in electronic format. And we're in the process of translating it into multiple uh, languages as well, like Chinese, Good for you. Uh, uh, hopefully Punjabi, Spanish, and, and a bunch of others to reach the... Uh, traditionally principled families that uh, make up 25% of Ontario's population, which is a huge number. These people are absolutely clueless. They're more uh, socially conservative than, uh, than you know, average Canadians uh, of multiple generations. And once they read this stuff, they're going to be outraged. Yeah. So it's important to educate them with this stuff. I will say also... Um, the Ezra Institute puts out something called Jubilee Magazine, which has been, for the last five or six years, been speaking to the cultural changes in a theologically uh, challenging and uh, edifying way. The magazines will be delivered to you for free. Uh, you can go to the Ezra Institute website, and it will be sent to you. This last one has been on social justice. I've written explicitly on the new form of tolerance 
which is just fundamentalism and it's crushing Christian conscience all over the place. So it's explicitly on that. Um, but you'll also find the PDFs on the website. You can look at them there. If you, okay. It's actually a comment. 20 years ago, Ray Bruce, where we lived, started to embrace the Toronto District School Board curriculum. Mm-hmm. We stood out against it. Good. It was implemented without parental consent, and it was alarming what was happening in grade 6. We then moved to Oshawa. But I will say a word of encouragement. First of all, your statistic. Ten... In the It's, it's, I agree with you largely. First of all, children uh, do what children do and has been observed ever since Aristotle, which is they naturally love to imitate. And the people that they love to imitate are those that they love, and the people that they love are their parents. So if they see their parents doing certain things, then they themselves will want to do it. And so when the parent says, this is meaningful, and they see that they are practicing what they preach, then they're going to want to do that themselves because those that you're their role model as your parents that is actually the case on the other hand if you practice that at home and yet you send them for five days a week the entire day to a school that is teaching them the exact opposite you're sending mixed messages and and you have to recognize the coercive power of social pressure as they get older and the the way that the the culture as well as the school system and the entertainment industry it's all against you and they're being taught to be rebels from early age let me give you an illustration of this because i just need to do it since the 19th century the hero of every fictional novel or movie is an orphan Charles Dickens, the kids are all orphans. Um, Anne of Green Gables, they're all orphans, right? Superhero comics, which we are now being dramatized on film, they're all orphans. Harry Potter's an orphan. James Bond is an orphan. The list goes on. They're all orphans. You, after a while, you think, hmm, there's a pattern here. Yes, ding, ding. Okay, what is, why would the orphan be a pattern for children, why would children be taught this and promoted it in the culture? Because they're being taught to think of themselves as orphans. Orphans are those that have no parents. Think for yourself. Don't embrace the values of your parents. That's the ideal that they're being taught to aspire to very 
tacitly. So you really need to be thoughtful about this. You need, Christians need to be thinking on this. I agree with you that your example in the home is preeminent. But the mixed signals that you, by sending your child to, to, to a place that is speaking the exact opposite, in which the system is actually teaching them to think as orphans, leads to the consequence that I've already spoken of. Six out of ten evangelical children leave the faith. It's a horrifying statistic. Well, being of Irish descent, I'll keep it under a couple of minutes. So one thing I was thinking you were saying about the um, the people that have had the you know religious the family um, grounding one one nationality of people that we should get are the Muslims they are actually against wins um, sex education and I think they would be a very good um, you know to be with us because what they what she's trying to promote they're against so how how um, Bible is that to have them on our side? The difficulty is that there are no, as far as I know, no real um, uh, integration or, or overlap even in those uh, communities. First of all, there aren't that many Muslims even in Toronto, you have to realize. Uh, although the numbers are growing almost exponentially for two reasons. Immigration is, is off the charts Muslim. 7% in Toronto. Um, in Thorncliffe Park, where Kathleen Wynne is the MPP, this is uh, uh, people come from Pakistan and Afghanistan to not to Canada, not to Toronto. They come to Thorncliffe Park. If you go there, you will see women in burqas and niqabs and so forth. Uh, it has the highest birth rate in all of Canada, right there. Now, the agenda for that, I leave for you to connect the dots. But in general, there, this is where the Mosqueteria took place. There is no collaboration with those communities with Canadians on this. I agree that they would oppose this, and, and they're becoming aware of it. Um, but I think it's very difficult to collaborate on this front, although I agree there's a shared uh, problem here. Basically, what will happen, you try and bring that in one of those schools, and they'll make sure it doesn't happen. And they'll do it coercively by force. That's what will happen. But there are protests out in Peel. Uh, already, where people have uh, uh, speak better English and they're more aware of it, but I think in in her own constituency, I suspect there's a, a lack of awareness, or there's a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We won't do that in your area, and that so there's a a, a pact between Win, our first lesbian premier, and the strong Muslim community there. I don't know the reason, but I I agree that there is a potential collaboration there. I'm just not sure how fruitful that is myself. Personally, I would, could go on all evening, but you've been very patient. I'm aware of the time, the lateness of the day, the, the sort of the, uh, the topic under discussion. And, uh, but I would just like again to thank Dr. Masson and uh, Jack uh, for being here. It's been enlightening. I think it's been important. I have personally appreciated and benefited from the information and feel encouraged to continue. I hope we all do. Um, Francis Schaeffer said the two things, the two concerns he had back in the early 80s as a Presbyterian minister, the founder of Labrie Foundation in Switzerland, he was concerned that the one thing that would prevent Christians 
from being actively engaged would be this. Not that they would apostatize from the faith, but they would be overcome by personal peace and affluence. Personal peace and affluence. Let us not be put to sleep, but hopefully by the grace of God, we will digest and be encouraged to be active in whatever way we can to address this very important issue. Well, let's close off and pray. And again, thank you to our speakers for a, a most informative uh, presentation and uh, making us aware. And hopefully we'll respond. Uh, we may be few in numbers, but uh, we are not to be overwhelmed by mountains of difficulty but we are to say to the mountain and to the sea with you kind of thing. So hopefully we'll have the kind of faith that as we step out and act on what we've heard, uh, there will be blessings uh, for which future generations will be grateful. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time together. Uh, we thank you for your presence with us. Uh, some of what we have heard, maybe is disturbing, especially to be reminded of the extent of the intrusion of the secularization of our province, our educational system, in fact, many of our institutions. So we pray that you would inspire us to be courageous, to be discerning, and to be a people who are not just hearers of the word but doers. So help us, we pray. Dismiss us now, we ask, take us to our homes in safety and be pleased to watch over us and keep us faithful in all things to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.